0: Hello and welcome to the Simungo's podcast. So this is episode two of our three-part series on ENT emergencies with Jerry McGarry. So let's just jump right back in. Okay, so um, next patient that comes up is someone who was dining out and quickly developed a a sensation of something in the back of their throat. So we're querying a, a food bolus obstruction. I was wondering what your general first steps to this kind of case would be.
1: So food bolus obstruction is one of our commoner emergency admissions uh, as well. Um, So the first thing really is is the history. What were were they eating? And what we're particularly looking for here is, um, is there any history of any bone in in, in the the food bolus? Um, Obviously, the concern about food bolus obstruction is that if if it's a a bone or a sharp object, then it could progress to a perforation of the esophagus. Um, so, if you've got a patient who tells you that uh, actually no, it wasn't it wasn't bone, there was absolutely no bone in it. It's a, a piece of meat, or it's commonest commonest thing is a piece of meat. Um, and as you know, the most common patient is the edentulous patient who doesn't chew their food per- perhaps as well as they should. Um, then you've got a bit of time to, to to see how things go if there's no bone in it. A large percentage of food bolus obstructions will pass spontaneously. Uh, But it can sometimes take 12 to 24 hours before that happens. Uh, So much so that if I have a patient with a history of a meat bolus with no bone in it, um, I will try and sit on them overnight at least. Um, If that hasn't passed within 12 hours, um, then they need to go to theatre. But as I've already said, I think what happens is uh, the enzymes and the saliva and stuff eventually get to it. The the pain, if you can control the pain, eventually the smooth muscle relaxes a wee bit and it will it'll pass. Um, but if they've got bone, that's different. You need to refer them on to ENT. Um, whether you you sit on someone in A&E for a while to see if it's gonna pass, probably not. You'd probably as well to refer all of them to ENT but in the knowledge that the the ones without bone
0: are, are probably not going to go immediately to theater so we often see people who have a feeling of something being there but they're mm. swallowing fine they mm. they're, they're breathing fine and you get sometimes I presume these cases where they sometimes get a little bit of a scratch in the mucosa and they can get that feeling like there's something sharp there and sometimes if they're drinking fine and and breathing fine we send them home and we say look give it a day or two take some analgesia and if it's still bothering you come back and we can refer you to ENT. Do you think that's a a decent approach or do you think we should be So again I'm
1: I'm going to sound a bit like a one trick pony here but I'm going to go back to this history of what it was they were eating. So if if there's any chance that it was bone then I think they should see ENT now, the reason for that is we, we have encountered cases in the past where someone's come up, said they were they were out, they were having fish or something and they, they thought they swallowed a bone and they felt the sensation in their throat but it's a bit better now and they can swallow but it's a bit uncomfortable and they, the diagnosis is oh you've had a wee scratch and then uh, 10 days later they're admitted, admitted with sepsis and they have a a, a parapharyngeal abscess because the bone was lodged and migrated out through the, the walls of the, the pharynx so I think if there's any history or any potential that it could be a bone it should be seen um, now this is more the case in, in other countries where they eat fish that have got proper bones I, I, I did some of my training in Australia and when you have a fish bone in Australia it's a it's it, a, proper it's fish a real deal um, <laughs> uh, and and uh, uh, but here we tend not—we to have uh, sort of cartilaginous bones, if you like, uh, in our fish. But nevertheless, they can still stick. The common places for the bone to stick is in the tonsillar region or in the tongue base just between the epiglottis and, and the back of the tongue. Uh, and a, a, an ENT surgeon uh, should be able to examine that area uh, and, and rule out uh, a fishbone being being in that area
0: and probably worth having a look just in the oropharynx as you say because I've picked out a couple from, from tonsils or peritonsillar regions so before. It's so always
1: worth having a look so it, it, you can sometimes see it in the anterior pillar or, or near the tonsil but the other wee trick is if you can get a headlight and get a couple of you know, wooden tongue depressors, maybe three, one on top of the other so that it's really stiff and if you look in and you press the tongue firmly down then the bone will often stand up and wave at you um, because they're lying, if you like, flush with the curvature of the base of tongue. And when you depress the tongue, the bone can become more obvious. Is there any benefit in x-rays? For fish bones, no. I think if someone comes with a history of ingesting a foreign body and you you know it's pretty opaque, then perhaps. But... Um, the vast majority of fish bones that are seen on lateral x-rays of the neck are in fact uh, calcified arytenoid cartilages and variable calcification of the normal laryngeal structures. So, um, and, and yet they get sent on with an x-ray and the patient's usually told that the bone's shown up on the x-ray and it then you then have to uh, disabuse the patient of that notion and explain that that's not the case. So no is the short answer.
0: So when does it become surgical? How far down do you generally go before um, we should refer to surgeons? So uh, ENT
1: surgeons routinely use rigid esophagoscopes. We use this in our uh, diagnostic uh, pathway for head and neck cancers. So these, uh, if you've never seen one, are basically a, a metal tube, which is put into the esophagus in much the same way as a a sword swallower would would do. Obviously these days the patients are asleep but uh, in the past they used to do it with patients being awake. Now the reason we use rigid instruments is it allows us to hold open all the wee nooks and crannies in the pharynx places like the piriform fossa and the post region. Now uh, an experienced DNT surgeon can get a rigid esophagoscope down to the gastroesophageal junction a rigid esophagoscopy is a uh, treatment of choice for food bolus, um, and so we we will remove a food bolus from anywhere in the esophagus.
0: Can I ask you about um, any treatments for esophageal food boluses? So you sometimes hear bosacupin, mm-hmm. glucagon, fizzy drinks. Yeah. Any evidence? I'm, I'm sure the evidence is weak, but do you have any strong... Are, are they a waste of time or do you think they're a harmless kind of thing to try just, just to see?
1: Yeah, well, I, I think we've recently been reviewing this in our department and, as, as you say, the evidence is a bit poor. Um, I'm not so sure that Buscapan is a waste of time. It might be worth doing, whether it works or not, based on the fact that what it does is it delays you and it's the time... that's that's allowing the bolus to pass. So I think we need to do a nice study where patients are put on a 12-hour observation versus buscopan and a 12-hour observation to see what the the, the clearance rate of the bolus, uh, I would imagine, be fairly similar. There's not a lot of harm in giving them a bolus or buscopan. Um, I'm not so sure about fizzy drinks. Again, it depends... um, when you are in the, the whole process um, but I think it, it probably does no harm whether it does any good or not I'm not sure.
0: Are patients good at knowing where it is because I once read I can't remember where that that patients can identify quite well along the esophagus they'll also often point to their chest and, and say it feels there and that's usually quite in a good approximation is that true?
1: No, it's, there's a very poor correlation between where the patient says the bolus is and, and where it turns out to be. The exception to that is if it's above the level of the hyoid bone, the sens- the, sens- the sensory apparatus in the mouth and tongue is obviously uh, very uh, well developed and therefore if they think it's in the left side of the back of their mouth, it will be there. Um, but once the bolus has passed the level of the hyoid bone, localization is very poor. So someone might point to the suprasternal notch and say it feels like it's there, but when we take them to theatre, it's impacted at the gastroesophageal junction, um, and vice versa. So so south of the
0: hyoid bone, you, you you don't know where it is until you look. Okay, so we've packaged that patient up and referred them on. Um, so our next patient is a vertiginous patient, vertigo. Mm-hmm. Um. So, have you any thoughts on differentiating between peripheral and central? What what, what what, do you think when you approach a patient with vertigo? Yeah,
1: so, I mean, I, I think the first thing is to try and differentiate between the dizzy patient and the dizzy patient. Now, what I mean by that stupid statement is there are patients who are holding on to the trolley so they don't fall off and vomiting. Uh, uh, these people are properly dizzy. And then there's the patient who comes up with a history of, I get a bit dizzy sometimes. Um, and that really should be a, a primary care phenomenon rather than accident an emergency, but I'm sure you encounter them. Oh, lots yeah. of times, yeah. So, which of which
0: of the patients have we got here? Have we got someone who's vomiting and well, is let's pale say, and Yeah, dizzy you're pretty dizzy. You know, room yeah. spinning. They don't look yeah. comfortable. They're kind of holding on to the side yeah. of the bed. Yeah. It looks like a proper attack of yeah. vertigo. So, obviously, there's a
1: lot of different theories about what can cause this, but you have to make sure your patient's not having a stroke or an intracerebral bleed. So, you're going to do your neurological examination. Um, But you want to look for nystagmus. um, And if you've never seen good-going nystagmus before, you'll recognize it when you see it. One of the commonest causes of dizziness, which I'm sure will turn up in in, in A&E from time to time, is benign positional uh, vertigo, benign paroxysmal positional vertigo. And the paroxysmal bit's the important bit because it comes and goes. You can diagnose that without being too clever, usually from the history. These patients present with quite disabling dizziness, but it usually is brought on by a change in posture and head movement. So they reach up to get something down from a shelf above their head, or they turn over in bed, and before they know it, they've got the rotatory uh, vertigo that's characteristic of it. It would probably be a good idea for A&E doctors to uh, learn how to do uh, a hall pike manoeuvre, which is a diagnostic test for this. And this involves putting the patient on a trolley, lowering their head and twisting it to one
0: side and the other. And forgive me if, if you all do it and, and, and I'm telling you what you already know. Well, I, I do it. I wouldn't say everyone does it, mm-hmm. but I certainly do it. But I, I don't often see a positive uh, test result. So I, I often wonder to myself, am I doing it right? I, I, I've, well, I've learned it from textbooks and yeah. not from anyone specifically trained in it. So I don't know if there's any little tips or, or suggestions about how to do yeah. it correctly, just in case I'm not. So here's my,
1: my top tip for this. Um, I don't have the actual link with me, but I used to mention this to the GP uh, audience when I was teaching. Um, go onto YouTube and type in uh, vertigo, hallpike. There's a wee plasticine man called Morph that used to be uh, on the TV um, and they've got him uh, being put in the correct position and it's (laughs) it's quite entertaining to watch and it's quite unambiguous about what you should be doing. And it also allows you to do a thing called an Epley manoeuvre which is a therapeutic version of that diagnostic test and again you can learn... It visually from this YouTube clip, so I would commend
0: that to your audience to go and have we a look. We can that. we can put a link in the show notes to that, so so our listeners can. It might find be an it. idea
1: to do that. Yeah.
0: So let's say this patient has, um, let's say a peripheral cause, not not benign positional. So we're, we're gonna uh, say vestibular neuritis or something, and and we're gonna give the patient some treatment to take home. Um, do you have any strong Thoughts on what are the better types of treatment? I've seen a, a lot of options, you know, steminal or cyclozine or steroids, or any any strong thoughts about which are the best and and how long they should be administered for?
1: Yeah, I think the um, I think the. The easiest one is just to give them procloperazine, give them some Stematol, and uh, they should really be on it for a couple of days. If they're not settling with a couple of days of Stematol, they need investigated. Um, So I would just keep it simple and go with that. A lot of other things that you see people getting for dizziness that are not even indicated or even... um, licensed for use in dizziness. So the, the one I'm, I'm thinking of is a drug called betahistine or CERC. And the number of patients I see who've been put on that, it's only licensed for the treatment of Meniere's disease, which is a very specific disease and very easy to diagnose. Um, so Stematol is probably the one to give
0: and would both kind of options be be suitable? So you've got buckle, and or you've got the tablet form. Yeah. either Either's fine.
1: Yeah, buckle stem or something like that is is, is, is useful too. Can
0: it. I just ask you? You mentioned two days. What what are the reasons for just a short duration? Why why should we not extend it longer?
1: So we're assuming that this is a patient who's got disabling vertigo that was up at accident emergency, and as you said, was nauseated and had nystagmus, and we think it's a peripheral cause. Uh, so the diagnosis there is that uh, this is possibly uh, some sort of labyrinthine infection, but it could be something else. It could have a cholesteatoma or something like that. If they're not settling within a couple of days, then they really need to be referred to ENT. Um, these uh, episodic uh, vertigo episodes tend to be quite short-lived, and if something's persisting to the extent that someone was up at accident
0: emergency because they couldn't go about their daily business, I think uh, they should be referred to ENT. So you mentioned many ears was a, a nice easy one to diagnose. Can you just tell us how you would diagnose it?
1: In many ears, but as I say, I should say to you, I don't do any otology. I don't do ears. So anyone who knows me listening to this will be having a, <laughs> a chuckle to themselves. Um, so Prosper Manyer described his uh, disease, which is a, a triad of symptoms. There's episodic vertigo, so you have you can't have many years after one attack of dizziness. It has to be episodic, rotatory vertigo. Not just feeling a bit fuzzy, they've got to have the proper room spinning vertigo. So that's the first thing. The other thing is that they have tinnitus. They have usually unilateral noise in their ear. Okay, so they've got tinnitus, they've got vertigo. And the third thing, the clincher, is that there's evidence of a fluctuating low frequency sensory neural hearing loss. So in order to have Meniere's disease, you have to have all three. If you've not got all three,
0: you've not got Meniere's disease. And do they generally, do the three constituents of that, do they happen at the same time? So when they've got the rotatory kind of vertigo, is that when they feel the tinnitus? Is that when they get the sensory neural loss? Or can they be separate? That's a very good question.
1: A lot of patients describe the tinnitus getting worse as a prodrome. Um, So their tinnitus uh, gets worse and then they get dizzy. Uh, and, and then when, they, when we see them, they've got a hearing loss. So I think, um, I, I'm not sure it's always that way, but uh, prodromal increase in tinnitus is a quite a common phenomenon.
0: In terms of for TAGO, who would ENT like to have referred from us? Or do you think it would always be generally better just back to the GP and the yeah. GP could refer on? Yes,
1: I think... Um, you know, you know better than I, but I think some acute severe vertigo patients are often admitted and they're often admitted under the physicians because there's a question mark over whether they're having a brainstem stroke or or something like that. Um, but I think if it's someone who's sort of walking wounded and is, is giving an intermittent history, then it'd be back to the general practitioner uh, to refer uh, if, if things didn't settle.
0: Okay, so our next patient is one that you are probably going to be a wee bit more familiar with. Um, that's sinusitis um, So I know you deal a lot with sinus uh, stuff So um, any little kind of topics of conversation around sinusitis Is it an easy diagnosis? Do we over-diagnose it? And are there any little hints and tips around treatments for it?
1: Yeah, sinusitis is hugely overdiagnosed. And in fact, it's a dustbin diagnosis. A lot of people with unexplained symptoms are told it's their sinuses. Um, and it's not helped by the fact that um, we often get referrals that say, can you please see this patient who has sinus symptoms? And they don't even tell us what the symptoms are. And when you ask the patient, uh, what do you feel wrong with you? They say, well, I'm terrible boiled with sinus, doctor. And again, we still don't have any symptoms. So sinusitis is either acute sinusitis, which is a a serious condition, or chronic sinusitis. So let's deal with each in turn. Chronic sinusitis does not cause pain. So if someone's got frontal headaches or headaches or heaviness around their eyes and it's chronic, it's not sinusitis. Acute sinusitis does cause pain, but acute sinusitis is also associated with fever, and nasal discharge, nasal obstruction, and it's a short-lived thing, unless, of course, you get a complication. So when someone comes to you with acute sinusitis, it's a fairly straightforward diagnosis. Key in the diagnosis of any form of sinusitis is nasal symptoms. If someone doesn't have any nasal symptoms, they don't have sinusitis. And so those symptoms are blockage, um, congestion in their nose, discharge... If they're not present, it's not sinusitis. You cannot
0: get sick sinuses without a sick nose. So we would not uncommonly see, say, headache, and you palpate around and over the sinuses, they're tender. Mm-hmm. And that, for some, might be the the diagnosis of sinusitis. But what you're saying is, if they don't have nasal symptoms, tenderness over the sinuses is not sinusitis. Yeah, I
1: mean, this tenderness over the sinuses bother, uh, bothers me because... Um, With all due respect, a lot of people who say that don't know where the sinuses are or if they're even there. Um, What I mean by that is that forehead pain, for example, people say, oh, this is frontal sinusitis. A number of patients have been sent to me with forehead pain uh, who don't even have frontal sinuses because they're not universal. Um, And then you have to disabuse the patient of this idea that they've got sinusitis. And what would they often turn out to
0: be? What what are the things we're not thinking of if we're trying to...
1: Atypical facial pain... Um, Myofascial pain syndromes, tension headache. Tension headache is one of the commonest ones that's mistaken because this is usually uh, in the frontalis muscle and it's over the forehead and comes on at the end of the day. Um, the patients come and they say, oh, and if you touch my forehead, it's sore because there's, a, there's, a, there's, there's tenderness over the muscles. Um, and that often gets labelled as uh, sinusitis. Um, so that sort of phenomenon uh, atypical migraine can often present and the migraine thing is an interesting one because the trigeminal nerve uh, that supplies the nasal cavity as well so the old business of cluster headaches where the patient would get a runny nose uh, when they had their their uh, migraine um, uh, and they would immediately assume well my nose is running and I've got a headache therefore it must be my sinuses. So it's, it's, it's quite common. There's a lot of overlap and a lot of time is spent in the clinic um, trying to explain to patients that it's not sinusitis uh, because it's a very easy diagnosis to apply. Um, and it's not helped by adverts on the TV telling people they've got sinus pressure and sinus pain and take this, take that. Um, so I would be very circumspect about diagnosing Uh, sinusitis on the basis of headaches or facial pain without and particularly without nasal symptoms especially without nasal symptoms
0: now who would you give antibiotics to with sinusitis
1: antibiotics are only indicated for acute sinusitis which is not settling Okay. And again, so these are patients who are fevered and uh, they will have a purulent nasal discharge. And it may come on after the, on the back of a a, a simple cold, an upper respiratory tract infection that hasn't settled. So the the story is that they've had a cold for a couple of weeks and now they've developed unilateral headache, periorbital pain, can't breathe through their nose maybe have a bad smell in their nose because of the the, the pus. These are people who need antibiotics.
0: Is it generally
1: unilateral? Acute sinusitis will often start off as a viral, generalised thing with a cold, but by the time it becomes bacterial, it usually locates in, in one of the major sinuses.
0: Any other little treatments, kind of um, steam baths or decongestants, anything particularly helpful, or is it just try and see? I,
1: I think um, if it's acute sinusitis we're talking about, yeah. um, then antibiotics and decongestants. So tend to use topical decongestants, uh, oxymetazoline, otravine, ephedrine, that sort of thing. Um, to and it will usually settle. Um, I don't like or prescribe. Uh, Systemic things, and uh, these are not really very good.
0: So, we've we've discharged that last patient, we get a crash call to, to Rhesus. We've got a stridulous patient that has just come in. Um, don't have any pre existing reason or explanation for that, so it's just a new onset strider. Any particular kind of thoughts on how you approach these patients?
1: Yeah, well, again, it's it's A, B, C again, and, and uh, action and emergency uh, staff are, are, are super good at that uh, triage. But if you've got someone who's really struggling, and breathing the last, then you're you're limited in your options, and you probably should intubate them sooner rather than later. I think sometimes we're we're um, a wee bit reluctant to to go to intubation, whereas the tube can always come back out again. Um, you don't want to. Uh, lose a patient so we used to have an old adage was that um, when is the time to do a tracheostomy Uh, and the answer was when you've thought about it is the time to do a tracheostomy I think that I would change that now and when's the time to do a tracheostomy is when you've intubated the patient and you've controlled the situation and then you see whether or not they need it Um, so if you've got another type of patient who's mildly stridulous is not too tachypneic saturations are fine, they're not exhausted, then you've got some time on your hands, uh, and that allows you to get an ENT assessment. An ENT surgeon will, will look with a fiber optic nose endoscope and assess the airway, work out what's causing it. Is there a cord palsy? Is there a tumor in the larynx? Is there an infection? Um, and then do something appropriate. Um, so early ENT involvement, I think, is important. Um, But having said that, don't wait for ENT if the patient really is uh, struggling because we sometimes get patients... In fact, just last month I had someone transferred from another hospital who um, was deemed fit for transfer and I almost did a tracheostomy in the lift in the, the Queen Elizabeth Hospital by the time the patient got to us. He was almost breathing his last. We did, in fact, just get him into theatre, but I did the tracheostomy when he was on the trolley uh, rather than on the table. So don't leave it too long,
0: and if you're in doubt and you don't have an ENT surgeon, intubate. Any interim measures, any interim treatments, just whilst wearing transfer or wearing yeah. to intubate? Yeah. Anything you would generally do for most... Well, on
1: the basis time. that you might be treating edema of the larynx or infection or in- inflammation of the larynx and an empirical... Bolus, those of steroid and nebulised adrenaline and things like that are, are, are probably worth a, worth, go. worth a go. Not going to do Unlikely much harm. Unlikely to do much harm and might just help uh, settle things down.
0: So obviously we've got listeners from a variety of different mm. locations, but actually just in terms of myself in, in, in Glasgow, we don't have ENT on site. So we would have to transfer over to you. What 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 are your thoughts on kind of the the significant strider, the worrisome striders? Best to get you to come to us, or typically best to to kind of secure the area, or do you know manage it as best we can and then transfer? What, what's your thoughts?
1: So we have a centralised service now for the whole city, where ENT is all in uh, one one hospital, which means that all the other major hospitals that used to have ENT don't. Uh, and, and that's proved to cause some problems for people because they've, they've lost a service that used to be co-located with their accident emergency department. I think whenever possible, the patient should come to the ENT surgeon. And that's not because we don't like travel or that we're, we're, we're lazy. Um, there's a very good reason for it. If I come to your hospital from my specialist unit, apart from the fact that it takes the on-call ENT person out of the major referral base should a neck stabbing or something else come in, um, when I get to your hospital, there's no ENT department, so there's no ENT theatre, so there's no ENT theatre staff, so there's no laser, so there's no specialised endolaryngeal kit. So as a result, my options are severely limited. The patient is more likely to end up with a tracheostomy because i have got so few options. If the patient comes to us in the ENT unit, well, if it goes to an ENT theatre there, we can examine the larynx, we could do laser debulking of a tumour that we might find, we might do a laser cordotomy if a cord's the issue. There are so many other options to restore the airway without uh, resorting to a tracheostomy. So I think if the patient... uh, Really is an extremist and needs an ENT surgeon right away. Then it's probably better that they were intubated and transferred.
0: So many thanks again to Jerry McGarry. I think my main take-home points today are number one in terms of food bolus obstruction. Any potential bony impaction or obstruction should be seen straight away by ENT, as they can perforate through the wall of the airway or the esophagus. And the vast majority of fish bones seen on x-rays are actually calcified arytenoids or laryngeal structures, so x-rays are unlikely to help in these cases. Number two, in terms of vertigo, Stematol is a decent choice for peripheral causes of vertigo, but if not settled within 48 hours, then they should be referred for investigation. Number three, in terms of sinusitis, Sinusitis requires nasal symptoms before the diagnosis can be made, so that would include nasal congestion or blockage or discharge. And be wary of labeling headache and facial tenderness as sinusitis, particularly if there's no nasal symptoms. And finally, number four in terms of strider, if the airway is a concern, then consider early intubation. An a bolus dose of steroids and nebulized adrenaline is a useful stopgap to try, particularly if you're considering an edematous cause or an infective cause so many thanks to jerry mcgarry again many thanks to you for listening remember to visit our show notes for some of the links uh, from this podcast and also for lots of other additional resources for your enjoyment and we'll be back in a fortnight's time with part three thanks for listening and take care